You are listening to Resurrection Indiana. To find out more about our meeting times and location, check us out on Facebook or Instagram, or visit our website at resurrectionindiana.org. Well, you shall not commit adultery. In early television shows, and I was kind of looking at this, and it turns out it's a little bit of a myth, but there's this idea that married couples were often portrayed sleeping in twin beds. In fact, sometimes you can even find that that's sort of how things had to be portrayed at that time, that even if you were married, there were twin beds with a nightstand in between on television. That's actually not true. Certainly happened in some television shows, but there's others in which... There were married couples in a double bed, as probably most of us remember our own parents. Like I said, it wasn't a hard and fast rule, but there was this sort of communication of this sort of shared, at the time, cultural values. Sex was not to be seen, and it was to be portrayed as clearly reserved for marriage. Now, even back in the 1950s, it's maybe debatable how much those portrayals reflected real values of that time. But there is, certainly in media and in entertainment, a clear contrast with today. By the early 2000s, there were numerous articles and even studies done on what was called the hookup culture or no-strings-attached relationships. People largely in their teens and 20s, maybe older than that, in which people intentionally seek out each other for a no-strings-attached physical relationship with no emotional connection. There's no attempt to build a relationship. The point is simply to meet what is viewed as a physical need without the entanglements of having any responsibility toward one another. We look at all of these things and we tend to take one of two approaches. One, that we may look at traditional values as being outdated and overly restrictive and, and even thankful that we no longer live in such times, that we become more enlightened. Or maybe we long for a time and a return to a time in which those values were upheld. Now, you could probably nuance each of those in a number of different ways. But there's a problem with both of those, which is that in neither case have we paid attention to or even understood God's design and intention for sexuality and relationships. One side celebrates freedom from restrictive moralism. The other side desires a return to a godly morality. But in both cases, but in both cases, the point is a morality whether you're embracing it or running from it. Well, we may certainly argue that morality is not at all a bad thing. Morality is not the gospel. And so what does God want us to get out of this commandment? The reality is to become faithful in love and in sex, we need to understand God's design, God's intention. So what we want to do this morning is this. We want to look at the purpose of sex going all the way back to the beginning. This is not something that comes up culturally later on. And look just a few minutes at God's design. And then, of course, like many of the other commandments here, there is a prohibition. What does this preclude? 
But also, how does this lead us to the gospel as well? We go all the way back to the beginning in Genesis to find the purpose of sexuality. A lot of times we look at some of the things that the Apostle Paul said, or maybe even Jesus himself in the New Testament. These are not things that are imposed on us by religion. They're actually grounded in creation. Back in Genesis chapter 2, we see, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the idea, of course, is that in marriage, a man and a woman are to belong, first of all, and foremost, to each other. They actually leave their families of origin, and they're joined to each other. And the means of being joined together, the glue, so to speak, is the sexual relationship. Various places in the Bible speak of a husband and wife knowing each other. And that's what's meant. Sex is the most intimate that two human beings can possibly be. It's the closest you can be to someone else. And you are actually created for that type of a relationship. And that's why we believe from Genesis, from creation, that marriage is not something that is Christian. It's actually a creation ordinance. It doesn't just belong to Christianity. And virtually all cultures throughout history have viewed marriage as good and as the foundation of a healthy society. Mentioned that the sexual act, sort of the glue that binds a couple together, one person has described it as covenant cement. What God has joined together, let man not separate. It's designed to stick people together and to not become unstuck. And, of course, for that to work, the glue needs to be used properly and in a relationship with a lifelong commitment. Now, the principle here is that sexual relations are designed to be enjoyed within marriage. Sometimes we say within the confines of marriage. What we mean is that there are boundaries to that relationship. Do we really mean that limiting those relations to the confines of marriage really is confining. Another way to put it, and I would argue maybe a bit more helpful, would be to say that sexual relations are to be enjoyed within the safety of marriage. See, sex is only one component of healthy intimacy in a romantic relationship. When it's separated out and enjoyed by itself, it actually becomes something less than it was intended to be. And further, being completely known by another person is a very vulnerable thing. And if it doesn't happen in a relationship in which safety exists, it actually becomes a damaging thing. And that's the reason for marriage. It creates a structure in which something that is very, very good can be enjoyed in a very healthy way. Relationship in which a man and a woman commit themselves to each other for a lifetime. Of course, we know that marriages don't always work out that way, but the intent and the hope is that there's a real security in which two people are free to be completely vulnerable with each other. 
and there's another piece of piece of this as well um, that fits in here, and especially in our day and age, what do you do with same-sex relationships or homosexual relationships? You know, can there be committed relationships? Can there be committed relationships in that way? Actually, I've had a pastor friend who is someone who has struggled with same-sex attraction, homosexual attractions his entire life, has never experienced attraction to the opposite sex, and consequently has been single for his whole life. And I remember at one point saying that he has been asked often, why in the world are you committed to a belief system that means that you can never experience the physical fulfillment that you actually desire in this life? And his answer was, because, because I believe in Jesus. And because I look at the Bible and I see that marriage is actually a picture of the gospel. We'll go into this a little bit later as well. But the idea, Jesus is often portrayed as a husband and the church portrayed as a bride. And as this pastor put it, I'm sort of stuck with this. He says, because that picture of the gospel only works if the two halves are complementary, not the same. Dawn Eden, who is a writer and journalist, um, recounts that she spent the decade of her 20s covering rock music and consequently also participated in all of the sexual culture that went along with it. At the age of 31, she became a Christian. One of the reasons was that she reached the conclusion that the fulfillment she was seeking in her sexual relationships was nowhere to be found. And in fact, it was damaging to her soul. A few years after, she wrote a book that was titled The Thrill of the Chaste, Finding Fulfillment While Keeping Your Clothes On. And in that, she detailed what she had come to believe were the damaging effects of sex outside of marriage and the fulfillment that was to be found instead in following Christ and his design. The reality is that there is great hurt that is done to women and to men when sexual enjoyment is taken outside the bounds for which it was designed. What we find, in fact, is that freedom is not freedom at all that actually is enslavement. So there's the intent, kind of in broad outline. But the command specifically is, you shall not commit adultery. So what's entailed there? Well, obviously there is the act of adultery itself. A person who is married, committed to one person, nevertheless wholly gives themselves to another person physically outside of the marriage covenant. Now that's unquestionably a breaking of that covenant relationship between a man and a woman. In the ancient Near East, adultery was almost universally condemned. And throughout history, up until pretty much this past century. In the Bible, adultery was considered to be a capital offense. And in fact, there were other cultures in which if a man found his wife committing adultery in his own home, he was justified in killing both his wife and her lover. Now the point 
is that that physical act of adultery was taken as an extremely serious offense, not only against marriage, but against society. Now, in the United States, before 1970, living together outside of marriage was pretty uncommon. But by the late 1990s, 50 to 60% of couples were living together before marriage. And of course, today, this is so accepted that if you are a couple who chooses not to live together before marriage, you're sort of considered an oddity. You need to remember that this is a fairly recent development. fairly recent that the vast majority of sexual relationships that occur in television and movies occurs outside of marriage. But that wasn't always the case. So there's this physical breaking of the command. That's clear just from the few words that are there. But are there other ways that you can break that command? That you can commit adultery? Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now the point here is not only that this goes against God's design, but that the intention of our hearts is also at work. And this is true, we've seen this in in other commands as well. That what is intended in Exodus and when these commands were given was not just the act itself, but the intents that are underneath it. And if you think about it, there are all sorts of ways in which you might act against the covenants of marriage and that union between a man and a woman without actually physically committing adultery. Lust, as Jesus mentions, thinking about or fantasizing about sex with someone to whom you are not married. Premarital sex falls under that, enjoying sexual relationships without the safety of a permanent relational commitment. And today, maybe more and more prevalent, is also pornography. The prevalence and availability of pornographic images and videos is actually becoming a national epidemic. I think these statistics are alarming, but I think they've only gone up. This is um, a few years ago, but I'm thinking it's probably higher now. 68% of young adult men and 18% of women use pornography at least once a week. Another 17% and another 30% of women use pornography a couple of times a month. That means that for 85% of young men and nearly half of young women Pornography is a part of their lives, regularly. So when we speak of adultery, we're concerned for a breaking of the marriage covenant. But one of the issues today is that men can be so involved in internet pornography addictions that they've effectively broken their marriage vows, even though they've not committed adultery with another person. One of the other things we see is even even if we don't necessarily, even for people who don't believe in sex being confined to a marriage relationship, very often today recognize that pornography is damaging even to that. 
And as tempting as it is to be sort of despairing about our current culture, we ought also recognize that while there certainly are some technological differences to what has gone before, our current state today is not necessarily more immoral than the ancient world. For instance, there are some scholars who assert that the Apostle Paul didn't know anything of homosexuality as it is practiced today. The reality is that the Apostle Paul lived in a time that included the Roman Emperor Nero, who was married publicly multiple times, sometimes to women and sometimes to other men. And many of the accepted sexual practices of the Roman world make the 21st century America look prudish. <coughs> now that's simply to say that the issues of sexuality that we encounter today are nothing new. This isn't a problem with our culture today. This is a problem with humanity, and it's a problem that's been with us throughout all of history. And so when this command is laid down, when Jesus talks about these things in the New Testament, it is not in the context of, well, they didn't know what our world would be like later on. It wasn't that different. And again, we go back to the purpose of sexuality. Pastor Philip Ryken puts it this way. He says, since sex is like super glue, squeezing it out at the wrong time or in the wrong place always creates an awful mess. The wrong things get joined together, and getting them unstuck again tears at the soul. That is why adultery is forbidden. It's because sex is a great force for good, but only when it is used to join one man and one woman for life. And for that reason, we need to have a gospel picture of sexuality. So that leads us to our final uh, final piece here, the picture of the gospel. God and his people. I alluded to that a few moments ago, this idea of Jesus as the groom and his people as a bride. The union that occurs in a marriage is so foundational to what it means to be human that that marriage is how God describes his relationship to his people. And that happens both in negative and positive ways throughout biblical history. The prophet Hosea, for example, God's people are portrayed as an unfaithful prostitute. He's not the only prophet that says that, by the way. But positively as well, in Paul's letter to the Ephesians in the New Testament, he speaks of marriage, and he talks about the roles of a husband and of a wife, but then he goes on and he says, but I am really speaking here about Christ and the church. And so that faithful marriage relationship that we are given here on earth is a picture of a relationship that God has with his people in heaven. And it's a picture of a totally committed, compassionate, and faithful husband who loves and pursues regardless of what he receives in return. For you men, this is what you are called to be as a husband. And that's far more important than the instructions regarding submission that are given in the scripture to wives. It is men who are called first and foremost to be faithful. 
That complete faithfulness comes in the context of recognizing that sexuality is connected to everything else. It can't be pulled away and sort of separated out. The pastor Eugene Peterson once talked about a woman who uh, he was counseling. She had been to a number of counselors dealing with uh, major significant issues in her life and got referred to him at one point and in their first meeting, this woman says to him, well, I suppose you want to know about my sex life. That's what all the therapists always want to hear about. And Peterson responded, well, that's important, and maybe we'll discuss that later, but what I'd really like to hear about right now is your prayer life. See, sex and prayer are related to each other. In other words, the intimacy which we seek with each other is directly connected to the intimacy that we are offered with God. And in fact, very often, in promiscuous sexual encounters, a person is actually looking for that kind of intimacy and vulnerability. Because the sexual relationship is the most intimate and closest to God's love for us that we can experience on earth, our faithfulness in that area actually says a lot about our faithfulness to God and even of our witness to the world around us, if you believe in Jesus. Edmund Clowney says that the husband who imitates the Lord by giving his life for his wife who has before him Christ perfecting of the church as his holy bride, who claims her not as his possession, but as belonging to the Lord. That husband will show his wife something of the love of Christ who calls them to be one flesh. Who claims her, he says, this is worth pointing out, who claims her not as his possession. One of the damaging effects of pornography, young women very often today complain rightly that young men, because of their usage of pornography, treat them as objects to be used, not as people to be loved. We're not meant to give ourselves fully to multiple lovers, and we're not meant to give ourselves fully to multiple gods either. <clears throat> the contrast of a Christian view of sex over against our culture is pretty sharp. But so is the pursuing and passionate and never giving up faithful love of the true God for his people. And finally, we can just say a word about community as well. Keeping the seventh commandment is not just about avoiding sin. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Certainly isn't less than that, but it should be about much more. It should be about becoming a community that values relationships in all their facets and recognize the need for deep and authentic relationships that are actually about more than sexuality. Rebecca McLaughlin, who I quoted last week, this is on a different topic, 
observes that in the early church, one struggle that was not faced in her reading of the book of Acts and a church that was facing persecution. She says one struggle that this church didn't face, although they faced all kinds of other struggles, was loneliness. And then she says this, if we reduce Christian community to sexual relationships and the nuclear family, we are utterly failing to deliver on biblical ethics. In other words, her point is that the church is not just about a traditional morality. It's about a community that welcomes and meets people in whatever state and stage they may be in. Whatever struggles they come with and whatever hurts they come with and whether they feel like they fit in what seems to be sometimes either traditional or sometimes even stereotypical picture of what a family should look like. Jesus, the faithful husband, shows his people what it looks like to be a true community. And the church ought to be that community for people who need it today. So I mentioned at the beginning that current idea of a no-strings-attached, purely physical relationship, and even movies that have portrayed this you know, sort of interesting is that even in those movies, a purely physical relationship, and maybe this is what gives those movies their plot, because a mere purely physical relationship very quickly becomes much more complicated. And even in the world, we recognize that it is almost impossible to keep a physical relationship strictly physical. And the truth is that we can't escape what we were created for. Even when we misuse what we've been given, we have a longing for things to be right. And so to become faithful in love and in sex, we need to understand God's design and his intention. But we also need to know there is not a one of us that keeps that commandment that in the gospel there is great grace in a God who calls us to himself in a Jesus who has kept that commandment. Adultery, the breaking of the marriage covenant, is not the unforgivable sin. And to all of us, Jesus offers his forgiveness, even as he calls us to faithfulness, to go and sin no more. That in his forgiveness, he promises to walk with us toward holiness and faithfulness. 